Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free book. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast. If I ever whet your appetite for some great spoken word history, look no further. Today, for reasons we will soon discover, I am recommending Napoleon A Life by Andrew Roberts. Napoleon Bonaparte is one of my favorite historical figures. I can literally never read enough about him, and Andrew Roberts' biography is the best I've come across. Clever, gripping, insightful, and it gives us a balanced portrait of the brilliant but flawed mastermind that was Napoleon. It is an amazing book, and it is free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. Welcome to a special edition of the Unknown Soldiers podcast. Today's story spans thousands of years across the globe. Our protagonists make decisions that determine the lives of thousands, wield unimaginable powers of destruction, decide the fate of nations, even as they are blinded, paralyzed, and shackled by the chains of command. Let's look through the eyes of four generals from the ancient world to the modern day. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 46, The Chains of Command. Guys, this is an unusual episode, very unlike most of the episodes I do. If it resembles any other episode, it's episode 33, The Iron Hand of Logistics. Like in that episode, I am taking a concept of military history, in this case, the experience of military leadership, and looking at how it has transformed throughout history, what has stayed the same and what has changed. And I will be doing it through the eyes of four generals from four wildly different time periods. Which generals? Oh, oh, that's a surprise. We'll get there. Before we get too deep, I want to say what this episode isn't. It is not a biography of these four generals, or even a tactical description of the battles. It is not a description of how generals win wars, what makes a good general, who were the best generals. It's not even about really how to be a good leader. No, our focus today is on the experience of military command. What does a general do? What do they see, hear, understand? How do they behave? How do they gather information, give orders, and make decisions? How do they control thousands or even millions of soldiers? And how and why has the role of the commander transformed throughout history. So let's meet four generals and see how they coped with the crushing weight of command. As you know, this is not just history, but military history. Dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast remains PG-13, language is clean, content is not. This one's a little lighter than some of them, but still there's still a deal with war, right? All my sources will be on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want to read up on any of these generals or on military leadership, Knock yourself out. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. Pop culture is obsessed with military leadership. It always has been. 
Some of our very oldest surviving texts are either guides for or stories about military leaders. The generals of the American Civil War and World War II are still iconic figures to most Americans. Brilliant commanders are mainstays of many fantasy or sci-fi or even conventional novels. Biographies of Robert E. Lee and Patton and Napoleon still top the bestseller lists. But the most telling sign of the obsession with commanders is the popularity of games where you pretend to become one. Age of Empires, Total War, Company of Heroes, Command and Conquer, all sorts of battle or war simulators, or tabletop games too. Many of my listeners will have played video games or strategy games that place you in the role of the commander. You know, moving your little units around the map, winning the battle. Guys, same. (laughs) I'm a big fan of those games myself. Everyone wants to be a general. It wins a video game. Somehow the games where you get to prevent wars or settle a crisis using diplomacy, those don't sell as well. As George Orwell noted, people like playing with 10 soldiers. 10 pacifists somehow just aren't as fun. But when I play these games, I remind myself, I have to bring myself back and remind myself that they can never portray the reality of command. What it means to have the lives of thousands, even millions of people in your hands. Where a snap decision, a bad call, a sudden flash of inspiration can turn the course of history. The gamer can never experience this burden or the limitations of command, no matter how good the CGI gets. Playing a strategy game, there's a fundamental thing here, because playing a game, you see the board from overhead. You have perfect knowledge of the terrain and your own soldiers' actions and conditions and positions. Perfect knowledge. How many generals would have killed for that perfect knowledge? To be able to look down like a god and see the battlefield laid out like a board game. The actual challenge of the commander is far more difficult than even the hardest strategy game could ever portray. I originally wanted to do an episode about generalship in World War I, a war that is infamous for the incompetence of its generals. As we will see, I disagree. I think most people don't understand the difficulty, the limitations, the sheer complexity of command. How hard it is for a general to maintain command and control, to keep their cool in the boiling chaos that is war. So I wanted to talk about that, but then I realized that World War I is only part of the story. We have to look at how generalship has changed, how the burdens and limitations of the commander have evolved, but never disappeared. Today's episode focuses on how generals exercise command, what they are able to do and what they aren't able to do, the power they wield and the limitations they are under. Commanders exist in a paradox of capabilities and limitations, strengths and weaknesses, seeing everything and seeing nothing. I call this combination of power, limitations, and burdens... The chains of command. The chains allow you to exercise power, but they also weigh you down, limit you, restrain you. In some cases, they can break you. So in today's episode, we are going to look at four historical generals in four important battles in four wildly different time periods and see what they saw. Look at how they exercised command, how they led their soldiers, how each of their experiences was similar, and how the experience of the general has changed across the centuries. Some of what I say today might be controversial. A lot of it will be my opinion. But my point today isn't to pass judgment. It's to show you guys the reality of what it means to be on top in warfare, even when it comes to very famous people. 
the unknown side of every battle, because even the greatest warlords, kings, emperors, or field marshals have cracked under the chains. Today we are going to look at four battles through the eyes of four generals. We are going to see what they saw, hear what they heard, know what they know. We're going to place them into context to show how the role and experience of a commander has changed over time. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. By the end of this episode, you will have a very clear understanding of the point. (laughs) You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And each of these generals, each of these sections, will be divided into breaks. These are your chance to pause whenever the music swells up again and reorganize your dresser, do some meal prep, whatever you got to do. So unfold your map, pull out your telescope, and try to make sense of the chaos on that field a mile away. You're in charge now, and thousands of soldiers live or die on your word. No pressure. Let's go on campaign. Let's set the scene. It is nighttime on a dusty plain, a few miles east of the modern Iraqi city of Mosul. Two armies have come to the field. Torches illuminate their camps as men stack their spears, set up their tents, eat their rations, and drink. For tomorrow, many of them will die. A small detachment rides out between the two opposing armies. They all wear bronze armor, but the young man leading them has the most ornate armor of all. He removes his helmet, revealing a handsome, clean-shaven face and a shaggy mane of dirty blonde hair. He is somewhat short, but well-built, with an air of confidence. The general tilts his head, almost quizzically, as he surveys the enemy position. This is King Alexander III of Macedon, but we know him as Alexander the Great. He is 24 years old, and tomorrow, October 1st, 331 B.C., will be the most important fight of his life, the Battle of Galgamila. Alexander the Great owed a lot to his father. Philip II had gotten the ball rolling, taking Macedon from a backwater barbarian kingdom to the dominant power in Greece, forging an amazing army in the process. Philip's combination of the pike phalanx, light infantry, and elite companion cavalry had proven irresistible on the ancient battlefield. Then Philip had been assassinated in 336 BC, leaving the ancient world's most dangerous military machine in the hands of his 20-year-old son, Alexander. So Alex did what all young men do when they inherit their dad's sweet ride, take the old girl out for a spin. By which I mean he decided to invade the Persian Empire and kick it to pieces. By the time of our battle in 331 BC, Alexander the Great was marching into northern Iraq, or Mesopotamia at that time, for his second and final battle with the Persian king of kings, Darius III. This would be the Battle of Galgamila. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Battle of Galgamila from the perspective of Alexander, see how he exercised command and why he did it the way he did. What is he able to see or hear or understand? How does he receive information and give orders? Why does he make certain choices? I'm using Alexander to showcase a certain style of military command, one that has been very common throughout history. 
You might even think of it as the basic, the most fundamental level of military command. Taking my cue from the historian John Keegan, I will call it heroic command. Pop culture gives us many examples of heroic command. Think of Leonidas screaming at his Spartans, or William Wallace yelling freedom, or Theoden leading the big charge in Return of the King, or Shakespeare's Henry V leading the English knights at Agincourt. These depictions aren't always accurate depictions, but they grasp the core concept. A general leads from the front, wields their charisma and personal courage and combat ability to ensure victory. Heroic command was very common in the ancient world and the Middle Ages. It's very common in traditional societies. And to lots of people, this is what generals are supposed to do. Lead from the front, put their lives on the line, be the movie star hero. But as we will see, the heroic style of command has severe limitations. Even these great warrior kings were bound by the chains of command. Anyway, back to our scene. Alexander on the night before Galgamila, riding out to examine the battlefield, which is a thing he was recorded as doing. Darius III had chosen to fight the battle on a wide open plain, where his larger numbers of cavalry could maneuver around Alexander's flanks. He had brought unusual new weapons, including scythe chariots and war elephants. Darius had even taken care to clean the battlefield of any obstacles or brush to ensure that his scythe chariots would have a smooth ride. The side of the chariot was a really weird thing. It was like a regular chariot with like big blades sticking out the side, like some of the Mad Max. See, Darius had already fought Alexander once at the Battle of Issus, and Alex had kicked his teeth in. So he was taking no chances this time. Once he was finished with his reconnaissance, Alexander gathered his subordinates in his tent to plan the next morning's battle. He knew that he was heavily outnumbered, that Darius would try to surround his smaller army with those enormous hordes of cavalry pulled off the Asian steppes. So Alexander and his officers spent the rest of that night planning, pitching various battle plans and trying to game them out. A council of war. During this planning conference, one of Alexander's generals spoke up. This was Parmenio, who had been his father's right-hand man. Parmenio was older and more experienced than Alexander, and he seems to have been the voice of caution. He thought that fighting Darius's army in the daytime was stupid. Like, they're much bigger than us. This is a bad idea. Instead, he proposed a night attack, like a sneak attack at night to catch the Persians off guard and rout their army. And Alexander shot this down immediately. According to the historian Arian, Alexander's reply was that it would be mean to steal a victory, and that Alexander ought to conquer in open daylight and without any artifice. This vaunting did not appear any arrogance on his part, but rather to indicate self-confidence amid dangers. Now, there were two big reasons why Alexander did not take Parmenio's advice to launch a night attack. The first was the reason that Arian gave. Alexander had a certain image to uphold, an image that might be tarnished if he didn't win his battle the right way. Heroic commanders are common in societies where military performance is intertwined with political authority. Medieval monarchs, Spartan kings, Indian rajas, Egyptian pharaohs, all lived in societies that were implicitly ruled by the sword. 
The legitimacy of their rule rested on their status as a warrior, and they had to assert that status or someone else might take their place. Alexander was well aware of this. The Macedonian royal court had always been a very assassination-prone environment. Alex's own father, despite being an outstanding general, had been assassinated. He could not take his own position for granted. So he had to be seen defeating Darius. A night attack might diminish Alexander's carefully cultivated image as a noble Greek warrior, like a character from the Homeric epics. Heroic command always devolves to the personal. Personal politics, personal authority, personal charisma, personal combat. The second reason was much more pragmatic. Alex had brought about 45,000 men to the Battle of Gaugamela. The extraordinary difficulty of moving and coordinating supply and as many soldiers and all their camp followers in the ancient world, well, we've been over that. That's the iron hand of logistics. Armies are really hard to control at the best of times, and darkness would make everything exponentially harder. We've seen people try night attacks in this podcast before, like Pyrrhus or Bonnie Prince Charlie, and it's almost always a bad idea. Units get turned around or lost or end up running into each other, Night attacks would pretty much not be feasible almost almost never until the modern age. So with Parmenio's idea rejected, Alexander and his subordinates finally settled on their battle plan. Everyone knew their places in the line, which order their battalions would be in left to right, and what their role in the overall game plan was. All this was pre-arranged before the battle began. Alexander slept late on the morning of October 1st, 331 BC, Long after his troops had already taken up their prearranged formations, he woke, donned his armor, strapped on his sword, and mounted his famous warhorse Bucephalus. Like any good heroic commander, just before the battle began, Alexander rode across the front of his army and spoke to them. He gave some sort of speech. The inspiring speech happens in like every movie with a big battle at the end, and this has some historical basis. Granted, most of Alex's men probably didn't hear this speech. It's 45,000 people. He didn't have a megaphone. Like, the, fr the front rank might have heard him, and no one else. But it was the gesture that counted. The heroic commander had to see and be seen by his army, speak to them, look them in the eyes. He had to appear confident and self-assured and heroic. It was important for morale, especially in the pre-modern world. Alexander's battle plan was brilliant. He knew the Persians vastly outnumbered him, that they would use their superior cavalry to try and outflank him, so he would play into their expectations. He would pull his own flanks back, tempting the Persians to draw themselves outward. This would weaken their center. Then, when the moment was right, when Darius had committed his reserves to the flanks, Alexander would lead his elite companion cavalry in a sudden strike at the center of the Persian line. This plan required exquisite timing. Alexander's attack would have to come at just the right moment. Too early, and the Persian center might be too strong, the reserves might not have left yet. Too late, and the Persian cavalry might overwhelm the rest of his army. So Alexander ordered units of infantry to hide among the cavalry on his flanks, and placed a second line of infantry as a reserve. These were unusual tactical dis dispositions for the time, in many cases the first time any commander did this in the ancient world. And the idea was that these might surprise and counter the Persian cavalry attack. 
and hopefully buy the rest of the army some time for Alexander to land the killing blow. Alexander took command of the right flank, leaving the left flank in the hands of Parmenio. He placed himself at the head of his cavalry, hefting his spear, readying himself for battle. Now, Alexander, unlike every other general in today's episode, would lead his men from the front. We've established why he does this. He has an image to uphold, the image of the heroic, you know, personally brave, personally courageous, and skilled commander. But let's go into the drawbacks, because as soon as he threw himself into combat, Alexander would sacrifice command and control. Command and control, which the military often calls C2, is a modern phrase. At its most basic, it is exercising authority and direction over your forces. When generals have command and control, everyone is in contact. The commander is receiving information and issuing orders. Their units are carrying out the plan. But when command and control break down, everything dissolves into chaos. Everyone goes off script doing their own thing, and you've lost complete control. And to a degree, the breakdown is inevitable. War is inherently chaotic. To mitigate the chaos, to maintain any semblance of command and control, especially when the fighting starts, generals need to have something like a military nervous system. Think of like, you know, the nerves that deliver information to the brain so the brain can make decisions and tell the nerves what to do next. An army works much the same way. Just, you know, it's, it's multiple bodies rather than a single body. A commander receives information, whether through their own eyes or through reports from their subordinates. Then they gave orders based on this information. But this information flow is inherently imperfect. We've seen that Alexander did personal recon of the battlefield, the enemy army, his own army. That was all information he could gain personally with his own eyes. But once the battle started, he would be able to observe less and less and rely more and more on imperfect second-hand information. This is what is called fog of war. The Prussian military analyst Karl von Clausewitz, it's always Clausewitz, was the first to allude to this condition as a fog. This is the quote. War is the realm of uncertainty. Three quarters of the factors on which action and war is based are wrapped in a fog of greater or lesser uncertainty. A sensitive and discriminating judgment is called for, a skilled intelligence to scent out the truth. The impossibility of perfect information in warfare, where you often don't even know where your own units are, let alone the enemies. You have to rely on information passed along by messengers or scouts or generals for all the things you can't see with your own eyes. Because remember, in Alexander's day, the fastest mode of communication was a dude on horseback. And this guy's information might be incomplete, inaccurate, or even old. In the time it takes that messenger to get to Alexander, the situation might have changed. In modern militaries, handling this imperfect feedback loop of information is the main function of a staff. To keep the commander from being overwhelmed by the flood of information, to sort and package it and present it to them so they can make the decision, then input that decision back into the military nervous system. You can think of the staff as like the spinal column of the army, sending information from the nerve endings, the army and the soldiers and the scouts, to the brain, 
the general, who reacts based on these stimuli, and then the spinal column sends the general's reactions back out. Alexander had a small staff, made up of close personal friends and bodyguards, his uh, big C companions. These guys were important for logistics and intelligence and a bunch of stuff outside of battle. But when Alexander led his forces into melee combat, his personal staff went with him and fought beside him. They were removed, and he was removed from the feedback loop. This meant that if something went horribly wrong, Alexander might not be able to react in time. He would be detached from the military nervous system. Ceding overall control of the army, trusting that his subordinates could carry on without him, was a calculated risk. To be a heroic commander entailed a necessary sacrifice of command and control. If Alexander couldn't control the whole army, though, he could at least control the most important part of the army. Alexander would personally command the companion cavalry, not just because of his need to play the hero, but also, but because they were the most important part of the plan. With the limited control that heroic command allowed him, Alexander chose to concentrate on the decisive point of the battle. Great commanders from the ancient world to the modern day are able to look through the fog of war and find the thing that matters, the critical point, what will tip the balance between victory and defeat. So the Battle of Galgamela began, and Alexander's ability to command and control his army immediately dropped. For one thing, there were a whole bunch of moving parts now, 45,000 men organized in their own units with their own commanders, all reacting to what they saw, engaging with their own lower-level feedback loops. And for another thing, the battlefield became suddenly clouded. One thing the movies never get right is the enormous amount of dust an army kicks up. A Macedonian army of 45,000 men, a Persian army at least twice as large, with horses and elephants and chariots, and the dust cloud would have enveloped much of the battlefield. Alexander would have had a difficult time picking out any sort of detail. His own lines, the enemy lines, would all be obscured by the dust, and the battlefield was well over a couple of miles wide. Thanks to video games and movie cameras and etc., we're used to seeing a battlefield from above, where we can clearly see the big formations pushing left or right, or who's going where, or how things are unfolding. But Alex was in first person, a dude on a horse, with the heat of an Iraqi sun beating down on his helmet, watching thousands of armored men rippling across miles of battlefield in clouds of dust. In this critical moment, as the Battle of Galgamela is joined, Alexander is constrained, restricted, nearly blinded by the chains of command. Alexander has to trust his subordinate commanders, especially Parmenio on the left flank. His control was limited to the right flank, his immediate vicinity, where his staff could still pass out orders and receive information, where he could still see anything. Alexander coordinated things on this part of the battlefield for the opening stages of the, com of the combat, ordering reserves to move back and forth, pushing his units out to the right to try and encourage the Persians to spread their forces out. Then, looking through the dust, he saw it. A gap had opened up in the Persian line. Hold. Hold. Then Alexander hefts his spear and spurs Bucephalus forward. His 3,000 companion cavalry follow in wedge formation, aimed at that gap in the Persian line. 
as his horse's hooves crash across the dusty plain of Galgamila, as the Macedonian cavalry thunder behind him, screaming the Ilai-Lai-Lai war cry, as Alexander impacts the Persian line seconds before the rest of his companions, he has no control over this battle anymore. Jesus take the wheel, or I guess Apollo take the wheel. What was it like to be Alexander? I'm going to make an analogy, a tortured analogy. You are an NFL quarterback in the middle of a roaring stadium. You can barely hear yourself and no one can really hear you. Your vision is limited by dust and human bodies and your own helmet. Also, adding to this, you're on a horse. You have a sharp pointy object in your hand. And there are other people, also on horses, also in armor, also with sharp pointy objects, who want to murder you before you murder them, which you are totally going to try to do. Oh, and you're still a quarterback. You still have responsibilities. But not for 11 people, but 45,000 people. 3,000 of whom are currently following you, only a few of whom can hear you. That is what it was like to be Alexander the Great in the heat of Galgamila. And this was another enormous risk of heroic command. Alexander might get killed. Alexander was almost killed several times throughout his career. Just one example in his first big battle against the Persians. Alexander came within seconds of having his head caved in before one of his bodyguards saved him. Personal danger was part and parcel of heroic command. But that didn't mean the commander had plot armor. There are lots of cases where a heroic commander just gets shish-kebobbed and their army panics and runs away. One very famous example was the Battle of Hastings, 1066. The Anglo-Saxon King Harold II was exercising heroic command, leading his army from the front, when he took an arrow to the face and freaking died. His army panicked and ran away, and William the Conqueror conquered England. Of course, that implies that the heroic commander is, well... Heroic. You could have an Alexander, or you could have a Darius III. Because Alex was looking for the Persian king. This was a rematch. Something like this confrontation had already happened at the Battle of Issus two years earlier. There's this wonderful mosaic in the ruins of Pompeii depicting Alexander at the Battle of Issus, and it depicts this exact moment where Alexander is riding on horseback, stabbing some Persian dude through the kidney. And he's, but he's not looking at the dude he's stabbing. He's looking directly at his arch nemesis, Darius III, like a freaking psycho. Darius is like, oh, crap! And he's run, turning to run away. His eyes are as wide as dinner plates. Darius ran away at Issus, and it's hard to blame him. It sounds like Alex was a really scary dude to run into on the battlefield. But when Darius ran, so did his army. Alexander was hoping for a repeat performance at Galgamila, and Darius obliged him. The Persian king turned his chariot around and hightailed it for, you know, anywhere else, putting as much distance between him and Alexander as possible. And when Darius fled, the center of his line collapsed. Then, at this crucial moment, a messenger on horseback brought Alexander news from Parmenio. The Macedonian left wing was under heavy attack from the Persian cavalry, and the old general was fighting desperately. He was holding, but for how much longer? Implication was, Mr. King, come help me. Alexander had a choice. He wanted to pursue and capture Darius, alive if possible, so that he could wrap this war up in a neat little package. 
he might still catch the Persian king if he set out right now. But this might also sacrifice his veteran soldiers in the rest of the battle, soldiers he couldn't afford to lose. It is very difficult for the heroic commander to pull away from personal combat and regain some idea of the bigger picture. This happens a lot in these battles. The king will be leading his section of the line, everything's going fine as far as he can see, but everything on the other side of the battlefield has gone to hell. And he has no idea. He's out of the feedback loop. In the absolute lunatic chaos of trumpeting war elephants and wounded men yelling, and probably a couple blows to the helmet rattling his old brain pan around, sweating, exhausted, fatigued, in the heat and tasting blood in his mouth and wild-eyed, Alexander trusted the information that he was given. He called off the pursuit of Darius and led his cavalry to rescue his left wing. As it turned out, the information was wrong. Not because it had been wrong at the time, but because it was wrong by the time Alexander arrived. Parmenio had salvaged the situation and had driven the Persians back, but this had cost Alexander valuable minutes. Darius was already beyond his grasp. He fled deep into the Iranian mountains, where he would be assassinated a year later. The dangers of not being enough of a heroic commander in this age. When you run away from the battlefield, you lose prestige. And then the knives come out. Nevertheless, Alexander's victory at Galgamila is seen as a tactical masterpiece by historians past and present. He is called the Great, and for good reason but he was bound by the expectations of his time and his culture. He was expected to be at the front, and he was expected to fight. By all accounts, this was how he liked it. He saw himself as a reincarnation of Greek heroes like Achilles. But Alexander had to sever himself from his military nervous system to do this, to play this role. The limitation of heroic command. The movies will never accurately show the chaos, the confusion, the lack of information or knowledge, the swirling dust and visceral sense of danger. This is Alexander, becoming the hero, sacrificing control, losing his grip on the chains of command. Let's set the scene. A rider in a brightly colored uniform, a hussar, gallops through the dark forests of central Germany. He passes long columns of blue-coated infantry, wagons full of supplies, and teams of horses hauling brass cannon. The rider carries a hastily written message. It says something like, I don't know, 5.56 p.m., 2,000 Saxon infantry, four light guns, two squadron horse, marching east from Kirchheim. The hussar arrives at a German farmhouse surrounded by a ring of tall soldiers in bearskin hats. Inside are a couple dozen men, most of them in gaudy uniforms with epaulettes or ribbons. Despite their drip, they are all business. Some of them are crowded around a large map, moving blue and red pins here and there. Others mill around, murmuring to each other, leaning against the walls. A curly-haired officer in a red sash supervises them all. 
the hussar hands him the message. The officer reads it, then turns around and walks over to his boss. This is a sulky-faced man with trim black hair wearing a long blue soldier's overcoat. He is short, but not as short as the propaganda says. He crosses his arms as he stares into the fireplace. This is Napoleon, Emperor of the French. It is October 1806, and he has led the French Grande Armée into Germany to wage war against the Kingdom of Prussia. The curly-headed officer is his chief of staff, Louis-Alexandre Berthier. After he reads the message, Napoleon strides over to the table and looks at the map for a minute. Then, he dictates orders in a torrent of rapid-fire French as Berthier takes notes. Within minutes, couriers are carrying Berthier's handwritten orders in every direction. Within hours, they will reach the various parts of Napoleon's army. Within three days, those parts of the army will be doing battle with the Prussians. Historians will describe the Jena-Auerstadt campaign as one of the most brilliant in the annals of warfare. Napoleon Bonaparte was already a legendary commander before he was 30 years old. He had been a lieutenant in the French army when the French Revolution broke out in 1789 and used the military fame he gained in the subsequent wars to seize power and declare himself emperor by 1804. Then he led France to war against basically all of Europe, and so far he was kinda winning. Prussia was the latest of Europe's great powers to throw down with the emperor. So in late 1806, Napoleon crashed into central Germany like the Kool-Aid man, seeking to defeat the Prussian army in a decisive battle. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Jena-Auerstadt campaign from the perspective of Napoleon. See how he exercised command and why he did it the way he did. And I'm going to focus on what has changed since Alexander's day. Once again, I am using Napoleon to showcase a different style of military command. One that fits pretty closely to the classic conception of the great commander. This is how Julius Caesar... Genghis Khan, George Washington, Robert E. Lee, and Ulysses S. Grant all led their armies. A disciplined and stoic style of leadership that I call ordered command. Back to our scene. What we just witnessed is Napoleon's command and control machinery in action. See, Napoleon's armies were not much different from other armies of the day, technology-wise. Everyone used muskets and cannons and cavalry with swords and lances, what Napoleon brought to the table, the real thing, were his innovations in command and control. Unlike Alexander, he had a dedicated military staff to serve as the neurons in his military nervous system. Now, having a staff was not unique to the French army. Militaries had had staff organizations for a long time. The Roman legions, Genghis Khan's Mongol army, George Washington's army, they all had something like a staff a dedicated set of officers comprising a military nervous system. But Napoleon's staff was so well-organized, so fluid, that it put anything else to shame. That's why his army always seemed to move so quickly, to be so perfectly synchronized. All future military staff models have been influenced by Napoleon's model. This staff was led by Berthier, Napoleon's right-hand man, who took the emperor's orders, his commander's intent, and processed it into individual instructions for the whole French army. And Berthier was really good at this. He was a wizard. 
What's funny, though, is that the few times Berthier was in command in Napoleon's shoes, he sucked. He was downright paralyzed with indecision. Berthier was good at implementing decisions, not making them. Below him were multiple staff sections, including the intelligence, topographical, and administrative sections. Berthier would use their information they assembled to compile his orders, which staff writers and couriers would carry down to Napoleon's subordinate commanders, each with his own staff, to do the same thing. This brings us to another of Napoleon's innovations, the Army Corps. This was like a mini-army containing infantry, artillery, and cavalry, an all-arms force that could function independently. The Corps introduced enormous flexibility to Napoleon's army. His corps system, like his staff system, would be imitated by every future military. The commanders of these corps were usually Napoleon's marshals. A colorful, fascinating cast of characters if there ever was one. Bernadotte, Masséna, Murat, Soult. I wish I had time to go into them, man. Like, these guys are nuts. But just, just to give you an idea, Alexander Hamilton, William T. Sherman, George Patton, those guys would find good company in the ranks of the marshals. Napoleon invaded northern Germany with seven army corps on October 8, 1806, each commanded by a marshal. But unlike Alexander, the army didn't travel together. The marshals were expected to operate semi-independently, within Napoleon's grand design, but able to manage the situation more directly than he could. The ordered commander, like Napoleon, had a much less direct and personal touch on his army than the heroic commander like Alexander. They had to rely much more on their subordinates. Armies were bigger. Warfare was more complicated, and this required not dramatic warrior heroes, but professional soldiers. The difference between the warrior and the soldier is the difference between heroic command and ordered command. All these measures Napoleon put into place were meant to cope with the growing distance of the general from the front lines. Napoleon, unlike Alexander, had to function much of the time on what he could not see, could not observe. His staff was turning the abstract words of reports into an image of the battlefield for their commander, and his marshals would manage the details of combat much more than he did. There was this increasing distance between the commander and the tangibles of warfare, from the blood and the shooting and the smoke. This is the key difference between how someone like Napoleon, or Washington, or Ulysses S. Grant, or even Julius Caesar commanded their armies, compared to someone like Alexander, or Leonidas, or Henry V. Ordered commanders usually come from cultures with ways of war that relied on systems, institutions, discipline. The personalist, heroic approach did not work in this military framework. It required more control, more order, a nervous system that was flexible and responsive to the will of the commander. Napoleon just could not observe everything. The fog of war loomed over all, even the movements of his own units. To compensate for this lack of direct observation, the abstraction of military reality, Napoleon had to be centrally located where he could receive constant reports, intelligence, communications from his scouts and spies and generals and diplomats. He needed the constant drip of information so he could form an image of the situation and react to events. War is chaos, and Napoleon was doing his best to mitigate that chaos. 
Like most great generals, he was a great improviser because he prepared for and expected the unexpected. Napoleon wrote, A general should say to himself many times a day, if the enemy army were to make its appearance to my front, on my right, or on my left, what should I do? And if he is embarrassed, his arrangements are bad. There is something wrong. He must rectify his mistake. The scene I depicted earlier came three days into the campaign, on the 11th of October, when Napoleon's cavalry scouts reported large Prussian forces massing west of the Sala River near Erfurt. This was the critical information Napoleon had been waiting for. Within hours, his entire army of 200,000 men and all their artillery and baggage executed a 90-degree wheel towards the Sala. The nearly perfect maneuver displayed Napoleon's military nervous system at its peak, the apex of command and control, when all communication moved by horseback, like synchronized swimmers. It would be beautiful if it wasn't so deadly. Napoleon wrote to the Empress Josephine on the 12th of October, I am today at Gera, my dearest love, and everything is going very well. I travel from 20 to 25 leagues each day, on horseback and in my carriage. I retire to rest at 8 o'clock and rise at midnight. The man didn't sleep much. By October 13th, Marshal Jean Lanz, commander of the 5th Corps, reported that 30,000 enemy troops were approaching the university town of Jena. Napoleon looked at his intel, looked at the map, and determined that the main body of the Prussian army was rendezvousing at Jena. He set his final plan into motion. Five of his seven corps would concentrate at Jena under his personal command to crush the Prussian army. The other two corps would circle around to the north to cut off the Prussian retreat. The marshal responsible for this maneuver would be Louis-Nicolas Davout of the 3rd Corps, a cold, humorless man identifiable by his balding head and enormous round glasses. Everyone who knew Davout swore that ice flowed through his veins. No one really liked him, but everyone respected him. But Napoleon was still trapped in the fog of war. As Clausewitz said, Many intelligence reports in war are contradictory. Even more are false, and most are uncertain. Napoleon's military nervous system, as magnificent as it was, had given him the wrong information. As it turned out, it would not be Napoleon who faced the main Prussian army on October 14th. It would be Davout. After Napoleon arrived at Jena on the evening of October 13th, the first thing he did was recon the battlefield, laying eyes on the hills overlooking the town. One of Napoleon's gifts was his ability to identify the critical terrain, in this case a large hill called the Landgrafenberg. Napoleon ordered artillery placed on the hill before dawn, and he thought this was important enough for it, him to supervise it personally. One soldier remembered. The road had to be enlarged and the rocks cut away. The emperor was there directing the engineers. He did not leave until the road was finished and the first piece of cannon, drawn by twelve horses, had passed on in front of him in absolute silence. After making a last recon and finalizing his battle plans, Napoleon got about two hours of sleep. The next day, October 14th, 1806, would be the Battle of Jena. 
Napoleon woke with the sunrise and took position on the Landgrafenberg with his staff as the cannons began to boom and the long blue lines of French infantry descended the heights. Bugles blared, drums pounded, and the Prussian musketeers came out to challenge the French. The crackle of musket fire filled the battlefield as the infantry traded volleys at the range of 100 to 200 yards. What was Napoleon doing during this battle? Napoleon was on horseback, riding with his staff, well behind the lines, observing the battle from the Landgrafenberg to the rear. Unlike Alexander, Napoleon is not dressed for battle. He might have a sword or even a pistol, but he does not expect to fight, and no one expects him to fight. He is placing himself in a position where he can see and manage the battle. He will find a high point where he can pull out a spyglass. Maybe he sees something wrong and gives an order to rectify the situation. Maybe he's looking for the right moment to send in his reserve or commit his cavalry or the infantry of the Imperial Guard. Why does Napoleon hang back? Why is he watching the battle from a distance? Wouldn't him being up front motivate his men? Wouldn't it be glorious and heroic and awesome? Wouldn't it make a better movie if he was more like Alexander? Probably, but think of what he would lose. First, Napoleon is coordinating the movements of almost 200,000 men over miles of terrain, and being too far front would sacrifice command and control. He needs to be in a position where he can observe, receive information, give orders, and react to events. Also, the battlefield is much larger. Alexander's men were concentrated, covering only a couple of miles. Napoleon's troops are spread out, covering a whole river valley dotted with towns and hills and ridges, and this is largely because of firepower. As firepower grew more lethal, armies were forced to spread out, to thin their lines and put more space between their men and their formations. And as they spread out, they became harder to control. The growth of firepower lengthens and deepens the battlefield. We'll see this throughout the rest of this episode. Growing firepower mandates a larger and emptier battlefield, posing greater burdens on the military nervous system. The size of the army, because Napoleon has more men than Alexander, that makes it even larger. Firepower also makes the battlefield harder to see. The smokeless powder of flintlock muskets and field artillery turned any battlefield into a haze within minutes. This is one of the big things about Civil War paintings and movies that never gets really accurately portrayed. Like, they're covered in smoke. They can't see anything half the time. Firepower has another side effect. When Alexander was 100 yards away from the enemy, he had very little to fear. But at that range, Napoleon could be easily hit by a musket ball. And because an ordered commander is the head of the nervous system, a sudden decapitation of that nervous system can spell disaster. In 1862, the Confederate General Albert Sidney Johnston was riding around the front lines at the Battle of Shiloh and was killed by a musket ball. The Confederates lost that battle largely because the army was headless at the critical moment. The Union Army, on the other hand, yet led by Ulysses S. Grant, stayed kept calm and cool because Grant stayed mostly to the rear managing the battle, more like Napoleon. Couple of famous Swedish warrior kings, Gustavus Adolphus and Carolus Rex, both died from gunshots because they got too close to the front lines, with devastating consequences for Swedish history. But an ordered commander also couldn't be too far back. 
again from the Civil War in 1862. The Battle of Antietam. Union General George McClellan spent the whole battle way too far back from his lines, watching from several miles away across a river, so far back that he was unable to manage the battle. The Union lost command and control and missed a golden opportunity to destroy Robert E. Lee's army. But sometimes the commander had to step in. This usually happened when the battle was at a crisis point, when their presence was necessary to rally the men and prevent a retreat. Napoleon had done this in 1796 during the Battle of Arcole, when he had taken up a French banner and led his infantry in an assault over a bridge. Robert E. Lee had to be stopped from doing this at the Battles of Wilderness and Spotsylvania. There's this moment where Lee tries to lead the men personally, and his soldiers like, what are you doing? Go back. General Lee, go back to the rear. But once the situation was restored, the ordered commander resumed their lofty perch on the heights to direct the battle. That was where they belonged. A good commander was no longer expected to be fiery or passionate like Alexander. Now they were stoic, unflinching, almost sublime. The stories of leaders like the Duke of Wellington and their coolness under fire, how they didn't lose their nerve or panic, that is what was admired in an ordered commander. Not heroic martial courage, but coolness under fire. And this was important for the men's morale and for its own sake. A general like Napoleon, or like Caesar, or like Grant, who can remain calm in the moments of crisis, those guys win. Again, Clausewitz. If we then ask what sort of mind is likeliest to display the qualities of military genius, it is the inquiring rather than the creative mind, the comprehensive rather than the specialized approach, the calm rather than the excitable head. Soldiers still needed Alexander-type figures to lead them into battle. They still needed heroic commanders. But those guys were now brigadier generals or regimental officers. They were the ones to march out front waving their swords, leading their men into the fray. That's their job. A dangerous job. Those guys died like flies. But they filled the role of the heroic commander that the ordered commander no longer could. This doesn't mean Napoleon no longer interacted with his soldiers. The bond between the emperor and his men was famous. It was still important to see and be seen by them, to interact with them, to gauge their morale and their condition. But Napoleon had to sacrifice the immediate benefits of inspiring and leading his men in combat. He could not afford to let go of the chains of command, even for an instant, because something might happen. And something happened. Michel Ney was one of Napoleon's most famous marshals, more for his courage than his common sense. He was the red-headed Leroy Jenkins of the French army, always found on the front lines, charging into battle, playing Alexander. And at Jena, he almost ruined Napoleon's plans. Ney arrived on the battlefield with part of his 6th Corps and just charged in recklessly, finding himself surrounded in a few minutes with only 3,000 men against the full force of the Prussian army. This was the crisis of the battle. Napoleon was furious. Watching from the heights, he sneered that Ney didn't have the tactical sense of a drummer boy. He ordered his other marshals to break through the Prussian lines and bail Ney out, then brought up his reserve artillery to patch the gap in the line. The battle reached its climax. Thousands of men in shades of blue, screaming, firing, fighting house to house in the villages, before the Prussians were driven back and Ney was rescued. Napoleon gave him a pretty good chewing out. Finally, the last of the Emperor's reinforcements arrived. 
Napoleon's final attack came at 12.30 p.m. and the Prussian army broke. The French cavalry thundered off in pursuit. Jena was a total crushing victory, with Napoleon certain that he had defeated the main Prussian army. But he was wrong. Late that afternoon, a courier arrived with shocking news. Even as Napoleon was winning the Battle of Jena, Marshal Louis-Nicolas Davout's Third Corps had collided with the main Prussian army eight miles to the north, near the village of Auerstadt. Davu was outnumbered by two and a half to one, 26,000 men to the Prussian 64,000. But both armies were surprised. Both sides' recon had failed to detect the presence of the other. But Davu kept his cool, directing reserves, riding to the point of crisis to rally his men, only exposing himself when necessary, maintaining control of the battle. On the other hand, the Duke of Brunswick, the Prussian commander, was killed trying to lead a grenadier regiment. His death caused confusion at a critical moment, giving Davu precious time to redeploy and bring up reinforcements. By noon, Davu had smashed the Prussian army in one of the most brilliant tactical performances of the age. Among the prisoners taken by Davu's corps was a young Prussian staff officer named Karl von Clausewitz. Clausewitz's military writings, which I've been quoting throughout this episode, were a response to Napoleon, a way to formulate and replicate Napoleon's style of warfare, a textbook for ordered command. At first, Napoleon refused to believe that Davu had defeated the main Prussian army. He told the courier, Tell your marshal he must be seeing double, which was a cheap insult directed at Davu's glasses. Napoleon does kind of have a mean girl energy to some of his insults, but at the end of the day, Napoleon acknowledged that Davu had won the campaign for him. He gave him the title Duke of Auerstadt and gave Davu the place of honor a few days later when the French army marched into Berlin. Napoleon had failed to realize that the critical battle was taking place eight miles to the north of Jena. He didn't know. He couldn't know. He had done everything he could to get the correct information, be at the decisive point, he had done everything right, and it still wasn't quite enough to pierce the fog of war. Napoleon was lucky that he had Davu. Another Napoleon stain, the most necessary quality of a commander, is luck. Napoleon made his own luck by selecting talented generals, creating the core system, creating the military nervous system, creating a way of war that allowed them to succeed even when the odds were against them. Like all great generals, Napoleon tried to win the battle before the first shot was fired. Jena and Auerstadt destroyed the old Prussian army. The humiliation of this defeat and the work of reformers like Clausewitz and Scharnhorst and Gneisenau, all of whom had been at Auerstadt, would transform the Prussian army and eventually the German army into the new models of military professionalism, including, most importantly, their staff system. As for Napoleon, the Jena-Auerstadt campaign is still studied as a masterpiece of military art, but as we all know, what goes up must come down. Just under ten years later, Napoleon fought the Battle of Waterloo, and by this battle, Berthier was dead, Lons was dead, Davu was absent, Napoleon himself was older, with less energy and less focus. His main subordinate commander at Waterloo 
was Michel Ney, who charged in again and messed up everything. At Waterloo in 1815, Napoleon's subordinates, and the man himself, failed to match the performance of 1806. His military nervous system failed to respond to the brain, the neurons didn't fire, and Napoleon lost. This is Napoleon in his last battle, when his magnificent military machine just wasn't the same, when he finally succumbed to the weight of the chains of command. Let's set the scene. The general wakes up in a large, comfortable bed. He shaves, pulls on his pristine khaki uniform, and sips his tea, even as guns rumble to the east. His hair is clean-cut, his mustache trim. He looks like a general. He goes downstairs into a room full of telephones, packed with staff officers, hunched over heavily detailed maps. The room clicks and chatters and mutters as typewriters ring and telegraphs spit out tiny ribbons of paper. The general will spend the worst day in his nation's history here, miles behind the lines where he cannot see and can barely hear the battle. The blood, the smoke, the suffering, he sees none of it. He is shackled to his headquarters, to his desk, to the telephone, because he has to be. This is Sir Douglas Haig, commander of British forces on the First World War's Western Front. It is July 1st, 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, the worst day in British military history. The casualty list will be unfathomable, over 57,000, 19,240 of whom are dead, worse than D-Day and 9-11 put together. Day one of six months on the Somme. British memory will blame Haig for all the deaths, see him as an incompetent, heartless butcher, grinding their boys into the blood-written abattoirs like the Somme and Passchendaele and Luz. But many historians let their grief blind them to the realities of the Western Front. Haig and all the generals of World War I were blinded, deafened, and paralyzed by the chains of command. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to look at the Battle of the Somme from the perspective of Douglas Haig to see how he exercised command and why he did it the way he did. What does he see? What does he know? How much can he know? Why does he make certain choices? I'm using Haig to showcase a transformation in military command, one that is emblematic of the World Wars, one that most generals still use to this day. Pershing, Eisenhower, Rommel, Bradley, Zhukov, Westmoreland, Petraeus, what I call managerial command, war by management. Douglas Haig assumed command of the British Expeditionary Force, or BEF, in late 1915. This would make him the top British general on the Western Front throughout the rest of World War I. Within the next few months, he and his staff were planning Britain's big 1916 offensive near the Somme River in northern France. 
the British High Command would do everything they could or thought they could do to make it a success. It didn't work. The first day of the Somme was a military catastrophe. Planning for the Somme was immense. It would be one of the largest battles in history. Before the war, Britain had had a very small army. The original BEF of August 1914 had been 80,000 strong. But by 1916, that had swelled to a force of 2 million. Ten times the number Napoleon had led into Germany 110 years earlier. A colossal army. The Battle of the Somme would eventually involve three field armies, 11 army corps, and 51 British or Commonwealth divisions, not including the French who were also in this battle. Freaking enormous. The army was spread out over an enormous area. We saw with Napoleon how the growth in firepower forced his army to spread out, to cover more ground. And since then, firepower had made a quantum leap. The machine gun, or rifles, usually get the most attention when it comes to World War I, but the real game-changer was artillery, which was stupidly powerful. Artillery caused the majority of casualties in both world wars. It fired faster and farther and deadlier than ever before. You were three times as likely to die from an artillery shell as a rifle or machine gun bullet. The British artillery fired 1.5 million shells in just the preliminary bombardment for the Battle of the Somme. More shells than both sides fired in the entire American Civil War. This forced armies to spread out, to go to ground, to dig trenches and get down to the dirt just to stay alive. Commanders at every level had to move back, not just for safety from the guns, but to control a deeper and wider battlefield. The irony is that the more destructive war becomes, the more abstract it becomes to the managers of that destruction. The wielders of violence are increasingly separate from the reality. At the peak of World War I, Haig would be responsible for 2 million men stretched across 140 miles of front line. How on earth do you manage this? How do you control it? And this is where the difficulty of command and control, the all-encompassing fog of war, come into play. The managerial commander lived in a world of things they could not see. Haig relied on the telegraph or the telephone. The commanders of World War II, like Rommel or Patton or Eisenhower, relied on the radio. Later generations would have the internet. These are the only way to exercise the chain of command in the modern world. But this requires the commander to be centrally located miles behind the lines, where all those wires and signals can connect, where their staff can process the enormous amounts of information. Haig sees nothing, observes nothing, is utterly dependent on what he is told by his command structure. His staff is turning the abstractions they receive from lower staffs into a further abstraction. Alexander was in the battle. Napoleon saw the battle. Haig had to rely on the reports of men below him, transmitted by wires, to paint his picture of the battlefield. And this picture was never accurate because of the impossibility of perfect information. So the colossal armies of the world wars required a much more complex nervous system. Bigger staffs and signals units and admin and clerks and paper pushers and military bureaucracy just to do anything. 
an army-level staff could easily occupy a town, just take it over. So it was full of men in khaki uniforms running around with clipboards and maps and charts, all of them sending and receiving and collating and compiling the information that helped the managerial commander, Sir Douglas Haig, make his decisions. Back to our scene. Haig at his headquarters, about nine miles behind the front lines, where phones rang off the hook with reports from subordinate commanders. Haig spent the morning of July 1st, 1916 at his desk, answering letters and receiving reports, as the flower of Britain's youth impaled itself on machine guns and artillery, as thousands of boys crossed no man's land to their inevitable destruction. Haig was sipping his tea and watching the reports come in. It was the only place he could be. There's a strange paradox to World War I command. The closer the general was to the battlefield, the less control he had. At around noon on July 1st, Haig wrote to one of his correspondents in Britain. Haig said that the attack had progressed well. I have great hopes of getting some measure of success. The wire has been more thoroughly cut than ever before, and also the artillery bombardment has been methodical and continuous. Forgive a disjointed letter, but a battle is going on and telegrams keep coming in at every moment. Might seem kind of weird that Haig was taking the time to write this letter to his friend in the middle of the first day of the psalm. Like, is there no better use of your time? But four and a half hours into the first day of the psalm, Haig did not and could not know what was going on. The World War I general was so separated from the active push and shove of the battle, so blinded by the fog of war, that the normal feedback loop of command did not work. Haig did not have enough information on July 1st to make any sort of decision or any sort of change. The battle that day was out of his hands. This is where I have to make the video game analogy. In real-time strategy games like Total War or Age of Empires or Command and Conquer, you are looking over the battlefield like a god, able to see all, know all, give instant orders to all your little digital minions whose condition and position you know perfectly perfect knowledge. To be Douglas Haig was the opposite of this. Haig was getting reports from the front line, but most of these reports were wrong, or incomplete, or both. World War I came at a very weird point in technological development, where the, there are these huge armies with enormous levels of firepower, but communication technology hasn't kept up. Haig's army had telegraphs and telephones, sure. What they did not have was a man-portable radio. This meant that as soon as a unit crossed into no man's land, it lost all communications. It vanished into the fog of war. They tried all these things like signal flares or carrier pigeons or spooling out telephone wire behind you, but these were all crapshoots. The only thing that really worked was sending back a runner, a guy to send back a guy back across no man's land to report. It doesn't take a military genius to realize how difficult this was. You want an idea? There's a recent movie called 1917 about how hard carrying a message over just a few miles of front could be. For instance, on July 1st, 1916, the 55th Brigade of the 18th Division captured all its objectives on the first day of the Somme, and they sent a guy to carry the message back to headquarters to ask for reinforcements and ask what to do next. It took him 24 hours to get back, because he got knocked unconscious by a shell and by then the news was old. Meaningless. 
For the entire first 36 hours of the Battle of the Somme, no one had any idea what was happening on the other side of No Man's Land. This would all change with the invention of the man-portable radio before World War II. After that, every platoon could carry a radio around and talk to their higher headquarters. The feedback loop would tighten up, enabling commanders to maintain contact with their units on the battlefield. But not in World War I. When those boys cross no man's land, they vanish into the darkness. The U.S. Army's Lost Battalion in 1918 is a famous story from World War I, but the majority of the time, all the battalions were lost. We've talked about how difficult it was to know anything as Alexander or Napoleon, how the fog of war, the growing size of armies, and the atmospheric conditions, and the confusion of the battlefield misled and blinded commanders. They relied on the drip of information from reports and recon and intelligence and their subordinates to understand what was going on beyond their line of sight. But in the Great War, that drip was dry. Nothing was coming back. The circumstances of World War I, the size of the battlefield, the overwhelming nature of firepower and the failure of communications meant that the generals were uniquely blinded. It was a historical anomaly. What little information Haig did get on July 1st seemed encouraging, like maybe a breakthrough was even possible. Haig's diary entry for July 1st says this, Reports up to 8am most satisfactory. Our troops had everywhere across the enemy's front trenches. But Haig, like every other commander in this episode, was receiving imperfect information. After all, most of the reports he was receiving were from units that had gotten across No Man's Land and accomplished their objectives. If a unit gets wiped out, there's no report coming back, so you can't make an assumption based on that. So, the British Army was being butchered on the Somme. The bodies of the eager young volunteers already littered the green fields of France. So what went wrong? Why was this battle so bad compared to any other battle of the war? The key decisions of the Somme had been made long before the first guns were fired. Crazy amounts of planning on every detail of the battle. Haig himself did little of this planning. Managerial commanders couldn't devote their attention to detail. There was just too much to do. They had to delegate the conduct of the battle to their subordinates. This is another constant in modern warfare. As the commander gets farther from the battle, more responsibility goes to the subordinates. The burden of command is delegated out of necessity. Remember Alexander or Napoleon reacting in moments of crisis? Haig was too far away to do that. It would have to pass through many too many layers, take too much time. So unlike many other World War I generals, to his credit, Haig followed the doctrine of the man on the spot. On the Somme, Haig commanded by giving his subordinates broad orders. The army and corps commanders would put a plan together and then send it up. Haig and his staff would review the plan, criticize it, and then bounce it back and forth for revisions until they were satisfied. Haig wasn't being the ordered commander. He wasn't being the heroic commander. He was managing those guys, overseeing the Napoleons and Alexanders who still exist, but who now need another level above them. One of the typical criticisms of Haig is that he was an old-fashioned commander, stuck in the past, doing the same thing over and over. This is false. Haig was a thoroughly modern general. He was constantly innovating, constantly tinkering, trying to find new ways to break the deadlock of trench warfare. 
He was an avid enthusiast of new technology like tanks and planes and poison gas and new tactical approaches. Like other World War I armies, Haig instituted a lessons-learned feedback loop in the BEF. Officers submitted reports after every battle that detailed what had worked and what hadn't. Like, yeah, we lost 5,000 men doing that. Don't do that. Haig and his staff would absorb these reports and then churn out new tactical and doctrinal pamphlets. Haig went over these documents himself, constantly stressing the need for fire support, small unit leadership, artillery plans, and communication and coordination. The idea that the World War I generals were stagnant and didn't learn anything is utterly disproven by the existence of these doctrinal pamphlets, which were constantly being updated with the new information they received. The generals of World War I were constantly trying different things. The problem was, so was the enemy. They were inventing modern warfare from scratch, and it was a race to see which side could out-invent the other. Would people in the present dismiss all the World War I generals as idiots? These were very intelligent people. It was just World War I. You go back to them and say, like, well, why didn't you do this? And they'd say, we tried that. 20,000 people died. It didn't work. Haig could not afford to worry about the minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour of the battle. He had to focus on doctrine, planning, overseeing his subordinates, the administration and logistics of his enormous army. The managerial commander can only have so much control over the battle. His job became steering the chaos, looking at the long game, planning and policy and doctrine and strategy. Managerial command. Haig understood the difficulties of communication. He knew how much he couldn't know. So he followed the doctrine of the man on the spot, since the lower level commanders were closer to the battle, could understand and know more than him, could adapt and react more quickly. If anything, Haig did this too much, and this sowed the seeds of disaster on the Somme. His chief subordinate, General Henry Rawlinson of the 4th Army, fundamentally disagreed with Haig's entire game plan. Haig was trying to achieve a breakthrough on the Somme. Rawlinson believed in a more limited attack. The result was a plan that didn't do either very well. And Haig did make a major mistake by spreading his artillery too thin across the front. But by pushing the decision-making down to the lower levels, Haig also failed to account for the inexperience of his army. The BEF of 1916 had swollen up from tiny British army to this huge army. It was made up of volunteers, enthusiastic young bright-eyed patriots that had answered the call of king and country. The pre-war British army had been decimated in the first few battles of 1914, and the survivors were spread too thin, like butter over too much bread. The battalion and brigade commanders, who dictated the small tactical tasks, like how to cross no man's land, how to deal with barbed wire, how much their soldiers should carry, and what they should do when they reached the first line of trenches, these guys didn't know what they were doing. They tried some downright crack-brain tactics on the small unit level. Several battalions who famously walked at, went at walking pace into the teeth of the German machine guns. Haig told his subordinates to do what they thought was best, but they didn't know what was best. He was, if anything, too modern, thinking too far ahead. Haig was an experienced general who expected too much from his inexperienced subordinates and his inexperienced army. The first day on the Somme is rightfully famous as one of the most 
disastrous events in British military history. Maybe the worst. But two things are important. First, nothing like the first day would happen again. When the Somme ended in November 1916, the British army was older and much wiser. Haig and his staff made mistakes, but they absorbed them, fixed them, and moved on. The learning curve was steep and bloody. The cost of learning was high, but the Great War was a high-casualty war, no matter what Haig or anyone else did. No general did much better. Many generals did much worse. As much as criticism as Haig has gotten, there was no point in praying for a different commander. You'd have to pray for a different war. And weren't they all? For another thing, the Somme almost shattered the German army. The sheer weight of artillery, the introduction of tanks, and the aggressiveness of the British army shocked the German high command. The British lost about 420,000 men in the six months on the Somme. The Germans lost more than 440,000. They had to pull their entire front line back dozens of miles due to their losses. Some German generals worried openly that they would not survive another battle like the Somme. Granted, it is questionable whether we should call the Somme a British victory. Haig thought it was, but man, it is hard to look past the slaughter of those boys on the first day. A slaughter for which Haig bore the ultimate responsibility. Did it affect him? Did he carry all that weight on his shoulders? Many people saw Haig as aloof, cold, almost dispassionate. He came from a Victorian ideal common across much of Europe where the stiff upper lip, discipline, and restraint were considered to be appropriate behavior. To some people, it seemed like he didn't care. Haig did care. He was just really bad at showing it, which was a flaw, which was on him. He constantly visited field hospitals, constantly went to the front to review the troops when there wasn't an active battle going on. He was Every single day, Haig made time to go spend time with the men. He understood the importance of them seeing and knowing their commander. He just didn't have the common touch. He never would. Guys like Eisenhower and Bradley and Montgomery and modern American generals, the big World War II generals with their smiles and their folksy demeanors, those guys could talk to the soldiers. Haig was a bad public speaker. He was kind of awkward, honestly kind of an introvert. But he did care. There was this one occasion where he snapped at an artist who wanted to paint his portrait. Like, go paint the men. They're the ones suffering. There were moments when he cracked. When he spoke to Major General Oliver Nugent, whose 36th Ulster Division had performed magnificently and suffered terribly on July 1st, Haig said, almost choking, I always think with regret that we failed to give you all the support we ought to have done. Nugent replied, Perhaps we had all been rather optimistic as to what it was possible to do. And Haig replied, revealingly and sadly, Well, we were all learning. Haig's soldiers didn't hate him, but they never loved him. He was too distant. World War I was such an impersonal, mindless thing, an alienation of humanity, the subsumption of man into the machine. Haig just seemed like part of that machine. As one great war veteran said, he was known as Dougie to the army, but with no enthusiasm. He was too remote, but that was not his fault. The show was too big. That sums it up. The show was too big. 
There was no room for Alexanders. The Alexanders died. Barely room for Napoleons. The Napoleons were blind. This was war by management. War by charts and metrics and meters of ground. Reduced to an abstraction. Where getting too close would drive you crazy. Many World War I and World War II generals would suffer mental breakdowns, mental collapses, as the burden and the strain and the agony of the death and the loss overwhelmed them. This was the fate of Erich Ludendorff, Haig's German equivalent from 1916 to 1918. A man of almost frantic energy, obsessed with detail, unwilling to delegate anything. By 1918, he was micromanaging the whole Western Front and he was losing his mind crying and shaking during major offensives, trying to sight individual artillery pieces, launching into screaming fits at his officers. Hitler would try to do the same thing during World War II, micromanage the movement of small units hundreds of miles away from his bunker, so disconnected from the battle he didn't realize how blind he was. Micromanaging a world war would drive you insane. Haig kept his distance, delegated, left the details and the grieving to others because anything else would destroy him. The chains of command had just grown too heavy. In 1918, the British Army graduated. They mastered the issues of communication and artillery and infantry tactics and tanks and air power and planning into something resembling modern combined arms warfare. The triumphs at Amiens in the Second Battle of the Somme and the breaching of the Hindenburg Line. In these battles, Haig's tactic of deferring to the man on the spot worked amazingly because the BEF had the experience to make it work. The British Army showed what it had learned on the Somme, broke the Western Front open, and shattered the Kaiser's army. These were the forgotten victories of the British Army in 1918, forever trapped in the shadow of the Somme and Passchendaele. This is Douglas Haig, achieving the largest and greatest victories in British military history. But he can't see them, can't hear them, can never be Alexander or even Napoleon. Because he is back in his headquarters, shackled to his telephone, blinded, deafened, and paralyzed by the chains of command. This final part comes with a disclaimer. Reliable information on this conflict and this general is hard to come by. Much of this is based on interviews and news articles and not so much on academic research because it doesn't exist yet. We may know less about this war than almost any other in history. And that's kind of my point. Our final commander has access to more information than any of the others, but what he can know for certain might be even less. Welcome to the Chains of Modern Command. Let's set the scene. Just before dawn on a winter's morning, the skies over a dozen cities light up with the flames of cruise missiles and the flash of artillery. Almost 200,000 troops, an invading army the size of Napoleon's, crash across the border. They are live on TV, on YouTube, on TikTok and Telegram. The invasion has begun. An observer remembered the scene as his homeland was attacked. 
It was like a Hollywood film. It was hard to believe that it was really happening in front of my eyes. I thought, God damn, that crazy bastard's gone and done it. I remember thinking that. I think we were all thinking that. The general wakes up on a cot and pulls on his military fatigues, mottled camouflage that Hager Napoleon would have found vulgar. He moves into the headquarters bunker at the heart of the capital, a Soviet-era complex deep underground, with a network of tunnels linking it to the metro. The general is already there when the president arrives, having sent his family to safety. All over the city, civilians are packing into the 500 bomb shelters left over from the Cold War. The president makes the key decision of the battle, probably the most important decision of the war. He's not leaving. Despite foreign leaders begging him to evacuate, telling him the city can't possibly hold, Zelensky makes the decision to stay. But that decision having been made, can the city hold? All eyes turn to the general, the one who will hold it if it can be held. A big block of a man with a scratchy beard and a round head, he kind of looks like he should be driving a dump truck, not like a commander leading the 21st century war. But the fate of the capital is in his hands. This is Valery Zaluzhny, Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine. It is February 24th, 2022. Zelensky has made the decision to stay in Kiev, but it is up to Zaluzhny and his commanders to win the battle, to wield the chains of command and save Ukraine. It is easy to forget how close the Russians came to victory in February 2022. The Battle of Kiev teetered on a knife's edge in those first few weeks of the war. It really could have gone either way. There has been a lot written about what the Russians did wrong, but not enough about what the Ukrainians did right. How Zelushny and his commanders caused one of the greatest upsets in military history. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the Battle of Kiev from the perspective of Valery Zelushny to see how he exercised command and why he did it the way he did. What does he see? What does he know? Why does he make certain choices? I'm using Zaluzhny to demonstrate how command looks in the modern day, its strengths and its limitations, why the old rules of history still hold true. What I will call hybrid command, military leadership in an age of hybrid warfare. It's not really that much different from managerial command, but this is the fourth part. I got to have a different title. Ever since the First World War, Militaries have grappled with the challenges of modern warfare. The size, the scale, the complexity, and the difficulty of maintaining command and control. At first glance, it seems like communications technology would make everything easier. We live in a world with radios, internet, cell phones, satellite imagery, and video streaming. The modern military nervous system can operate at the speed of sound. The feedback loop has shortened. It seems like commanders would have more information, not less, a greater ability to impose their will on the battlefield. And some commanders, some military analysts, believe this is possible. There's this thing called the RMA, the Revolution in Military Affairs, that believe that technology has fundamentally changed warfare. That perfect information is achievable through computers and GPS and drones and AI and precision weaponry. That they can perceive and see the battlefield like a video game. That the old restrictions on the commander had vanished. That they are no longer ruled by the chains of command. Especially since 1945, commanders have had to resist the urge to micromanage. For the American military, this reached its apex during the Vietnam War. 
American generals watching the battlefield from helicopters, trying to direct platoon leaders on the ground as if they were playing Age of Empires. Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara tried to turn the war into a spreadsheet, believing that perfect knowledge could translate into numbers, and that as long as the numbers were good, America could win. President Lyndon B. Johnson, picking strategic bombing targets in Hanoi, a world away, over his morning breakfast. These commanders believed that modern technology enabled perfect information, that they could win the war objectively and mathematically, through analysis and data. Hey, uh, who won the Vietnam War? Question. <laughs> Despite all their reports and metrics, the American leadership in Vietnam was as blind as ever. One thing I've been stressing this whole episode is the impossibility of perfect information. Our perception of the world does not become more accurate based on how much media we consume. If anything, it can become less accurate. Instead of a lack of knowledge, modern communications technology creates something far more dangerous. The illusion of knowledge. The mirage of perfect information. If there's anything the Russo-Ukrainian war has taught us since 2022, it's that the old rules of warfare still apply very, very much. Klauswitz's fog of war did not disappear with the internet or cell phones or Microsoft Teams. It just evolved. Remember, Douglas Haig's feedback loop broke down due to a lack of information. But modern military nervous systems are overwhelmed by a sheer volume of information, much of it incomplete, distorted, or flat-out false. Armies in the modern age face the same problems as everyone in the modern age. We are all constantly barraged with information, with media, with fake and real news, and finding the truth becomes difficult. This is an environment in which Russian military and intelligence services have thrived. Under Vladimir Putin, Russia has exercised what is called hybrid warfare. They use the post-truth age to their advantage. They have weaponized deception, disinformation, and the obfuscation of reality as part of their military strategy. They are creating a digital fog of war, an informational fog of war, to operate within. When the Russian army began to gather on the borders of Ukraine in late 2021, the Russian government cast this informational fog of war, like a digital smoke machine of obfuscating and diverting and misconstruing the narrative. This left the Ukrainian high command, including Pre President Volodymyr Zelensky and General Valery Zelushny, in a dilemma. American intelligence reported an imminent Russian attack against the capital city, but American intelligence did not have a great track record lately. See Afghanistan. Many believe that Russia was bluffing. The Ukrainian high command believed that Russia's plan was for a limited military intervention, restricted to the Donbass, and that the massing of forces north of Kiev was a feint. They did not necessarily believe this news of a big Russian strike towards the capital. But the Ukrainians had to prepare for any possibility. As Napoleon said, the general has to be saying to himself, what if the enemy does this or this? What should I do? So even though many Ukrainians never believed that Russia would launch a direct assault on Kyiv, they had to prepare for the worst. And one of the architects of this preparation was Valery Zaluzhny. Volodymyr Zelensky handpicked Zaluzhny as the new commander-in-chief in 2021. Zaluzhny was not the obvious choice. He'd been promoted over many men junior to him. He was much younger than the other candidates and too young to have served in the Soviet army. And that was why Zelensky chose him. 
Zaluzhny had never been indoctrinated into the Soviet approach to command. Soviet military doctrines were based on a view of warfare as scientific. Their solution to the chaos of battle and the fog of war was a rigid tactical playbook. Run into an enemy tank platoon? Flip to solution D3. Air attack. Open your book to solution A4. If the solution didn't work, you did it wrong. It was a number-crunching, formula-based approach to the chaos and confusion of modern warfare. In the autocratic Soviet system, individual initiative was a liability. Adherence to doctrine, a predictable, rote response to any problem, all that enabled the Soviet commander to basically set the machine into motion and stop worrying about it. This doctrine was a response to the Soviet experience in World War II and the difficulties of wielding command and control over a mass conscript army. There was no time to teach their officers how to think, so they taught them what to think. This doctrine also held true throughout the Cold War due to the presence of nuclear weapons. If the chain of command got decapitated in a mushroom cloud, having all your subordinates on autopilot meant that the body continued to function. In this situation, a rigid, easy-to-learn doctrine could actually be beneficial. This was the Soviet solution to the challenges of modern command. And if you're reading between the lines here, this is why you see the Russian attacks in Ukraine that resemble just nothing like a more than a wild hammering, because they're following these preset doctrines that aren't necessarily working, but they just keep doing it over and over. And Ukraine, as a former Soviet Republic, still operated on this military doctrine. But in 2014, the war in Donbass began against the Russian army and the LNR-DNR separatists. Against the larger, stronger Russian military, in a fog of war reinforced by the Russian use of hybrid warfare, the Ukrainians were fighting an uphill battle. Soviet doctrine was a numbers game. A smaller Soviet-style army would always lose to a larger Soviet-style army. Major defeats taught the Ukrainians a simple lesson. If they played by Soviet rules, they would lose. In 2015, Valery Zaluzhny led a brigade in the bloody battles around Devoltseva, a significant Ukrainian defeat. He became part of a new generation of Ukrainian army officers who would, you know, earn their knocks in the Donbass War. These officers sought a new way to fight, to wield the chains of command in the information age, with uncertainty and fake news and false information that corrupted the feedback loop, to build a Ukrainian army that could stop the Russian blitzkrieg. As one Ukrainian defense professional said, I can probably talk about Zaluzhny not just as a single person, but as a representative of the new generation of Ukrainian military. One trend we've seen throughout this episode is the increasing distance of the commander from the sharp end of the battle, from Alexander to Napoleon to Haig. Valery's Zaluzhny is farther away than all of them. He operates in a bunker underneath Kiev, full of computers and hardline telephones, as his troops fight a desperate battle all along the borders of Ukraine. As the Russians invaded on February 24th, the Ukrainian command center and social media worldwide were inundated with videos of missiles striking cities, of tank columns surging over border outposts, of helicopters ripping across the landscape. Social media just producing this deluge of information. All the reports, all the feedback, you know, just thousands of videos. All this information coming in, but how much of it could be trusted? 
the more disconnected commanders become, the more they must rely on their subordinates. But this comes with risks. Your officers might go off script, like Ney did to Napoleon at Jena, or they might lack the training, like Haig's officers at the Somme. One of the key functions of a modern commander is to develop their subordinates, to build a military culture, a military doctrine, where the subordinates can operate independently when the chains of command inevitably break down. Rather than trying to micromanage like the American commanders in Vietnam, or develop a rigid framework like the Soviet commanders where you have one solution to every problem, some modern generals embrace the chaos. This was Zaluzhny's approach. When the battle began, Zaluzhny would be shackled to his headquarters beneath Kiev, and despite all the technology at his fingertips, perfect knowledge of the battlefield would be impossible. That was what the Russians did, after all. Hybrid warfare, deception, misdirection, flooding the information space to overwhelm the feedback loop. They would also jam communications, break up the feedback loop, leave Ukrainian units unable to communicate with higher headquarters. The fog of war would consume the Ukrainian high command. Zaluzhny would be blinded, deafened, and paralyzed by both a lack of information and by too much information, most of which could not be trusted. The modern chains of command. So to defeat the Russians, Ukraine would have to decentralize its army, to train its brigade and battalion commanders to act independently, creatively, without direction from higher command to act on their initiative and do what they thought best, to take up Haig's doctrine of the man on the spot. It was the job of Zeluzhny and his staff to retool the entire Ukrainian army. This is a process that had been going on, Zeluzhny was part of it, but that was what the Ukrainians were doing from 2014 to 2022. Complete retooling from Soviet-style leadership, Soviet-style command, to this new style of command. It was the job of Zelushi and his staff to develop them, educate them, train them, instill this new doctrine in the Ukrainian army. Zelushi said in an interview, about a few months ago actually, <laughs> The most important thing is that I tried to change the culture within the armed forces of Ukraine so that everyone listens to the opinion of the subordinate. This is where we are fundamentally different from the Soviet army. It is this culture that has united generals and junior commanders, and most importantly, soldiers. <laughs> Thank God I didn't serve in the Soviet army. But this work, this transformation, wasn't complete yet when the Russians invaded on February 24th, 2022. It was time for the test. The Ukrainian army had done a lot of work, but had it transformed enough? According to Zeluzhny, when the first Russian attacks began, When it all started... I called every commander who was responsible for a particular area. Either I told him it had started, or the commander reported to me that some actions had already been taken and he was executing them. It was very brief. I said, hang in there. You know what to do. That phrase, you know what to do, that was the key. That was how Zeluzhny exercised command in the Battle of Kiev. Recognizing the limits of his position, the chains of command, he told his subordinates he trusted them and turned them loose. The Ukrainian army scattered, hiding from the sky, decentralizing and dispersing to avoid Russian air power and missile strikes. It was these brigades and battalions and platoons that confronted the Russian steamroller, commanders of small dispersed units, completely isolated by the fog of war. 
Solution sent reinforcements, managed logistics, focused on the big picture, but the battle would be waged by his subordinates. And the contrast between the two militaries could not have been more different. The Ukrainians were heavily outmatched against the firepower and resources and sheer volume of just material that the Russians deployed. But they managed to outmaneuver and pin down the big lumbering armored columns racing towards the capital. The Russians stuck to the script, the old Soviet doctrines with their inflexible approach that the Ukrainians dodged and disrupted. Individual Ukrainian brigade and battalion commanders waged their own battles, with the support of their headquarters, but without the dead hand of micromanagement. But Zeluzhny did not let go of the chains completely. The commander, like Alexander or Napoleon, still needed to intervene at moments of crisis to find the decisive moment and prevent disaster. His task was to look at the big picture and find the most important part of the battle and ensure that it succeeded. And in the first few hours of the Russian assault, Zeluzhny found it. Early on February 24th, Russian helicopters flew south from Belarus, aiming for Hostomel, a suburb 22 miles northwest of Kiev's government complex. KA-52 Hokum attack helicopters strafed the Antonov airport before the troop carriers came in. Only 300 inexperienced Ukrainian National Guardsmen held the Antonov airport. They managed to shoot down Russian helicopters but failed to prevent the landing of the elite Russian paratroopers, the VDV. The VDV managed to secure Antonov Airport by the middle of February 24th. The next phase of the plan would involve airlifting massive numbers of Russian troops and combat vehicles to Antonov Airport, and then they would launch a thunder run on the center of Kiev. The Soviet Union and Russia had a one-size-fits-all playbook for subduing a wayward puppet state. They had done it in Budapest 1956, Prague 1968, Kabul 1979, and Kazakhstan 2021. A rapid strike force consisting of VDV paratroopers would seize an airport near the capital and establish an air bridge, allowing reinforcements to fly in on board IL-76 transports. Then they would make a lightning assault on the capital and decapitate the government, kill Zelensky and his ministers, kill Zeluzhny and his staff, sever the head, and the body would topple. The ensuing breakdown of Ukrainian command and control would enable the Russian tank columns to capture the major cities, and Vladimir Putin would have his three-day victory. As soon as Zeluzhny learned that the Russians had seized Antonov Airport, he knew that's it. That is the most important thing happening right now. He was able to peer through the fire hose of information, sift through the chaos of the first hours of the war, and place his finger on the decisive point of the battle for Kiev, just like Clausewitz said the great commander has to do. If the Russians established an air bridge at Hostomel, they could use it to strike the capital before Ukrainian defenses were in place. The high command was scrambling forces to defend Kiev, but because of the effective Russian obscuration and misinformation campaign, Many of those units weren't in position yet. For a brief window of time on that first day, Kiev was naked, vulnerable, and even a small Russian force might reach the presidential palace. Zeluzhny immediately called the commander of the 72nd Mechanized Brigade, Colonel Oleksandr Vidovichenko, and told him that Hostomel must be recaptured immediately. When Vidovichenko said, look, I don't have enough troops, the Russians are everywhere, Zeluzhny told him, doesn't matter. What else we do doesn't matter. You have to try. The IL-76s might already be in the air. This is the critical point of the battle. 
lose Hostomel, lose the war. The counterattack went through. The 72nd Brigade, reinforced by the 4th Rapid Reaction Brigade of the Ukrainian National Guard, recaptured the Antonov Airport. They only held it for about 24 hours before the Russian armored column from the north managed to retake it. But this bought the Ukrainians' precious hours to hustle reinforcements to Kiev. It threw a wrench in the Russian plans. Had they held Antonov Airport in those first critical hours of February 24th, had they established the air bridge, the world might look very different today. The Russians would take Hostomel, but they never managed to penetrate the center of Kiev. They came close in early March after a breakthrough near the town of Moschun. General Oleksandr Sirsky, leading the Kiev defenses, made the decision to blow up one of the dams and flood the res reservoirs around the Dnieper, which basically stopped the Russian advance in its tracks north of the city. Russian command and control, compared to the Ukrainians, failed to keep up with the events. Dependent on radio, lacking initiative, still trying to obey the rigid orders of their superiors, most Russian units fell into a mess of confusion. Russian generals lost their grips on the chains of command. They had to venture to the front lines to exercise any control at all. And what happens when commanders get too close? We get a Wikipedia page listing all the Russian generals killed in Ukraine. If a modern general has to be at the front lines to exercise command, that means something's gone wrong. East of Kiev, local Ukrainian commanders learned that the Russians had jammed their communications. Colonel Leonid Koda of Ukraine's 1st Tank Brigade lost all touch with Zeluzhny's headquarters and its own units. They were on their own. The 1st Tank Brigade stood off 30 Russian battalion tactical groups, with Colonel Koda riding around the battlefield in a jeep to communicate with his battalions, which were chopping the Russians to pieces near Chernihiv. As U.S. General Mark Milley later observed, Coming down that avenue of approach was something like 30 battle groups. A single Ukrainian brigade stopped them. I don't know who that commander was, but he stopped them in their tracks. They couldn't get off the road. Their junior officers didn't have any initiative. This guy was like a buzzsaw just chewing them up. By April 2022, the Russians realized that their attacks had failed. Kiev would not fall, and if they didn't fall back soon, they risked being overwhelmed. In the only maneuver of the campaign that worked as intended, the mangled Russian army retreated back into Belarusian and Russian territory. The capital was safe. It is still too early to cast any sort of verdict on the Russo-Ukrainian War, or the Battle of Kiev for sure. The outcome is still hidden from all of us. Like I gave the disclaimer, a lot of this information is still very new. But whatever the ultimate outcome of this war, I do not think I am exaggerating when I say this. Valery Zaluzhny, his subordinates, and the Ukrainian army won the first decisive battle of the 21st century at Kiev. When he was asked to explain how he exercised the chains of command, Zaluzhny emphasized the courage of his soldiers first, but then he talked about the commanders they believed in, the commanders who believed in their chain of command, and their commanders who believed in me. Trust. Respect. The opposite of the micromanagers of Vietnam or the rigid doctrinaires of the Soviet army. To place confidence in your subordinates. To give them the tools to succeed. To hand decision-making power down to the colonel and the captain and the sergeant. That's not always easy. Every commander wants to control, wants to touch, wants to see everything for themselves. They all secretly want to be Alexander. They all secretly want to be playing a real-time strategy game. 
But like Napoleon, like Haig, Zeluzhny understands that the chains of command cannot be borne alone. The modern battlefield is too complex, too vast, too shrouded by the fog of war. If modern generals are less heroic, less present, less hands-on, if it feels like they have less control over the chaos of war, that's how it should be. The hardest part of modern command isn't taking control, it's letting go. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Guys, I hope you appreciated that episode because woo, was it a doozy to write and research, especially that last bit. What I wouldn't give for a go back and go forward in time 20 years and get a comprehensive history of the Ukraine war and not have to watch YouTube to write down lines from Zeluzhny's interview he gave a couple of months ago. But hey, that was my choice and I own it. Again, I admit, this is a kind of a weird episode. But I feel like it's important for understanding military history, leadership, and the history of warfare. I just felt this need to explain why commanders behave the way they do, why they act certain ways, what the challenges are. Again, I keep going back to our strategy games we all love so much, and as much fun as they are, they can never actually match the difficulties of command and military leadership. If anything, I think I've gained a lot of respect for all these guys. The AI still kicks my butt in company heroes all the time. And now I know I have it easy. So I chose these four generals, Alexander, Napoleon, Haig, and Zeluzhny, for a number of reasons. Not all of them were, you know, rational reasons. I kind of just really wanted to talk about Napoleon for a little bit. But mainly I chose these guys not just because they're interesting, because they served as useful guideposts to demonstrate how military command has transformed, just like it's a good chronological spread. If you'll notice, there are a number of trends. The growing distance between the commander and the combat, the growing scope and scale of their responsibilities, and the changing nature of the fog of war. Far from just being a cliche, you know, there's one of the things everybody throws out there, Fog of War is one of the defining features of military history for explaining why people do what they do, why they make the decisions they make. It's easy to look back with 2020 hindsight and say, should have done this, should have done that, should have turned right at Albuquerque. But there was so much these guys couldn't know or couldn't see. Now, are there still good generals and bad generals? Oh yes, Psh, oh definitely. Sometimes there are geniuses, sometimes there are straight up idiots. And this is an unknown soldier's podcast promise. I will always call out morons when I see them. But even the good generals faced enormous challenges and sometimes they made the wrong call because they didn't have all the information. Stepping into their shoes, trying to look at things as they saw them, I think it helps us understand. It makes them seem more human. But there's a bigger, meta-historical point to all of this. Every one of these commanders was a product of their age, bound by the expectations and limitations of their technology and traditions and cultures. They usually did what they thought was best, what made sense to them at the time, even if it doesn't seem to make sense today. We might judge Alexander for his heroic impulses, for losing control of his army as he rode away into battle, just as we might judge Haig for being too far away, sipping his tea as his Tommies went over the top. They were some of the most powerful people in history, responsible for the lives of thousands, wielding massive powers of destruction and death. And they were flesh and blood, short of sleep, 
hot, sweaty, tired, unable to see the other side of the battlefield, confused and disoriented in the physical and metaphorical fog of war. Those chains weighed heavy, and sometimes the commander broke beneath them. The chains broke Darius III, broke Ludendorff, broke a dozen Russian generals or so in the last 18 months. Eventually, they even broke Napoleon Bonaparte. So if you're a wargamer, next time you sit down to rev up Age of Empires, Hearts of Iron, Civil War Simulator, whatever you like, guys, have fun. I know I will. I can't wait to crush the Egyptians next time I play Rome Total War. But take a moment to wonder how you'd really fare in their shoes. If you could handle the fog of war, keep up with the feedback loop, manage the stress and the strain of running that military nervous system. Maybe there's a budding military genius somewhere in my audience that can. But the rest of you are probably like me, thanking your lucky stars that you will never have to bear the weight of the chains of command. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you really enjoyed it, and maybe you want to learn a little bit more about these guys. And that is awesome! All my sources are on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com, including all the articles and the YouTube videos I watch for the Ukraine war. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. Uh, it is much easier to find me on Facebook Messenger. Or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. I always appreciate feedback and commentary, so lay it on me. Small update for the next few weeks. The next episode is coming, but I will be spending the first two weeks of June, from June 2nd to about June 16th, at annual training for the Army National Guard, so I may or may not produce it on schedule. But I'll get it done as close as I can. Get hyped either way, because you know what's coming. It is the much-requested, much-anticipated Paraguayan War, a.k.a. the War of the Triple Alliance. Guys, it is going to be a doozy. This thing is insane. Get psyched. I'll be seeing you soon for our descent into the largest and bloodiest war in South American history. Bring a lot of bug spray, sunscreen, and changes of socks, because we are going to hang out in the swamp. And we'll get to that soonish. Well, I'll see you when I see you. And uh, one final note. For my American listeners, it is Memorial Day. Have a safe one. And if you can, take some time out of your day to remember the fallen, remember those who are no longer with us. I have some people I'll be remembering, and you probably do as well. So be safe, spend time with the people you love, and I'll see you when I see you, right here on Unknown Soldiers. <laughs>